instruction on that. The book of James. Allow me to uh, to read a book to you, a story that's probably familiar, a story about a boy named Alexander who had a, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box. But in my breakfast cereal box, all I found was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm gonna be car sick. No one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dickens liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than my picture of the invisible castle. <laughs> At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend and that Albert Moyo was his next best friend and that I was only his third best friend. I hope you sit on attack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone part and lands in Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said. I'm going to Australia. <laughs> on the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for my mom to get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy, and then when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with the car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I am having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everybody, no one even answered. So then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose red ones with white stripes. I chose blue ones with red stripes, but then the shoe man said, we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones, but they can't make me wear them. When we picked up my dad in his office, he said I couldn't play with his copying machine, but I forgot. He also said to watch out for the books on his desk, and I was careful as could be, except for my elbow. He also said, don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot, I got soap in my eyes, my marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. 
When I went to bed, Nick took back the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are like that. Even in Australia. You ever have days like that? Someone's thinking days? <laughs> I appreciate the cartoon that uh, says, Mama said there'd be days like this. She failed to mention that they could go on for months and months at a time. And then John Denver uh, sang the song, Some days are diamonds and some days are stones. Sometimes the hard times won't leave me alone. And sometimes the cold wind blows a chill in my bones because some days are diamonds, but some days are stones. Life's like that, even for the, the child of God. On this side, life is a rough ride. When I was a teenager, I remember our pastor saying so clearly, Sometimes in the Christian life, it's like going from one crisis to another. And I thought, that's an encouraging thought. But since my teenage years, I've, I've found that sometimes that's true. That sometimes we do go from one crisis to another. It was the great preacher Joseph Parker who said in one of his sermons, there's a, a broken heart in every crowd. Preach to the sorrowing, and you'll never lack for a congregation. As a child of God, and as a descendant of Adam, we all face trials. And we all face trials of many kinds. Sometimes they're physical, other times they're mental. Sometimes they're emotional, financial, marital, parental, vocational, spiritual. Look at what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. J.D. Phillips uh, skillfully paraphrased it this way, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. There's the reality of trials. Trials are inevitable. God doesn't remove every adverse circumstance from the pathway of His children. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to be immune from the hardships that are part of life since Adam's fall. Trials are not an elective. Trials are, re are a required course in God's curriculum. Puritan Thomas Manton said, God had one son without sin, but no son without a cross. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Not if you will face trials, but whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now it's not to say that the Christian life was one continual grind, because that's not true either. But it's just that we still live on a cursed earth. We no longer live in the garden. We've been cast out of the garden. And Jesus hasn't come back yet to set everything right. And, and until then, trials are inevitable. And trials are diversified. They, they come in all sizes. They come in all shapes. Uh, your, your trial might be an unhappy marriage. Your trial might be a difficult child or a frustrating occupation or a lingering illness. Uh, your trial might be financial. Your car broke down, or your, your job is about to end. And in the mind of James, it could be persecution, mistreatment, 
because you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. But trials are inevitable and trials are diversified. That's the reality of trials. But when they come, and no matter how they come, the response to trials for the child of God is what? He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or again, to, to paraphrase with J.B. Phillips, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as, as friends. Now look, the, the world does not respond to trials like that. The world does resent them. But it says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy. What is that? Is that a happy face? You know. And it's when trials come, we're supposed to, to put on a smile and de deny our true feelings, disguise ourselves, especially when we are in public, because Christians are to be happy all the time. That's not what he says. That's not the meaning of the word joy in Scripture. Joy in Scripture is not happiness. Joy in Scripture is having a supernatural delight in God, irrespective of circumstances or people. Joy is maintaining a spirit of cheerfulness in your heart, despite the disappointments and the heartaches and the hurt. And God says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. But for heaven's sake, don't stop with verse 2. Because if you stop with verse 2, you may think that James is being irrational, unreasonable. You're not being asked in the book of James to consider the trial itself pure joy. I mean, that would be cruel if you've lost a loved one. Or if you lost your health, or if you lost all of your possessions, or if you have been informed that your daughter has been raped on a college campus, you're supposed to consider that pure joy? That's not what it says. He does not say rejoice for that trial. Read the rest of the passage. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And you've got to let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We do not rejoice because the trial feels good. That the trial itself is pleasurable. It's not. We rejoice because out of a severe, painful trial, God can bring about good and God can accomplish something spiritually and eternally beneficial. That's the reason for the trial. God is not asking you here to wear a forced smile, to ignore the pain, to hold back the tears. When we saw a police car stop in front of our house a few years ago, and three officers get out of the police car, we had a pretty good idea what was coming. They were there to tell us that our son had died of a heart attack in North Dakota. We did not put on a happy face. We were broken. We just sat there on the love seat 
in absolute silence. We did not rejoice for the trial. James is saying that when the trials come, and no matter how they come, that you are to have a supernatural delight in God, irrespective of circumstances or people, because you know something to be true, you know that even in that trial, God can make you strong. God can work in my life through this. God can take this trial and help me mature, help me to grow, help me to lean into Him. Trials test us. Uh, he says that in verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith, your faith is being tested, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The process of testing one's faith is like the tempering of steel. It's the heat, rather than destroying the metal, makes the metal stronger. And the process is difficult, but the result is good. And so it's with our faith, the testing from trials, they, they purify you. They develop depth in your life. They remove things from your life that are displeasing to God. Your faith is being tested, a testing faith. And it's a persevering faith. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The Greek word perseverance means to, to stand one's ground, to remain steadfast, to persevere. Our Idaho pastor, Dave Roper, used to say that, that perseverance is staying power. And he writes, perseverance is not mere resignation, tooth-clenched determination to tough it out to the end. That may be stoic, but it's not Christian. James understood perseverance as simple persistence, doing God's will in the face of counter-influences, forgiving slights and unkindness for the 490th time. It's staying with a difficult marriage. It's struggling against enslaving habits. It's choosing purity of mind and body when to do so means lonely days and long nights. It means keeping one's word despite the pain of keeping it and obeying God when life is hard and when it hurts. But the prospects aren't grim. Perseverance yields a product. Real men, real women, stable, dependable, durable, strong. Unfortunately, our concept of God's goodness is based on the faulty assumption that personal happiness is the highest good. But true happiness, however, is something more profound than staying in the comfort zone. There are things to be done about our character that can only be done by suffering. To shield us from this suffering would, would not be good. It would, in fact, rob us of the highest possible ground. And so the Lord permits suffering in order to mold us. Pain puts us on notice that we cannot do without God and pushes us closer to Him and shatters the illusion that we're adequate in ourselves and draws us close to God. And in Him we find the resources we, we need to face life and its demands. And so the hard times are used by God to test our faith and to develop perseverance. And then thirdly, to give us a maturing faith. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and, and you must let 
perseverance, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God wants us to be mature. God wants us to grow, to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And God wants us to be complete, uh, conformed to Christ in all areas of our lives, and not lacking anything. God wants to use trials to make us useful in every possible way. Now, read the text very carefully. It does not say that God sends the trial. If you read scripture, you have to admit that sometimes God does send a trial. But if you read scripture carefully, you'll find out that life itself brings the trial, not necessarily the direct hand of God. A drunken driver, out of control, brings the trial. That wasn't God. Don't blame him. A boss at work that is just hard to live with. Hard to want to please. God did not bring that trial. God did not make your boss grumpy. The text does not say that God is the source of all the trials. And so if you look at the whole of Scripture, sometimes God does send a trial. And sometimes God does not. It comes from life. It comes from living in a cursed earth. And sometimes, if you read the book of Job, Satan sends the trial. And so trials can come from multiple sources. So don't read into this text, well, God is the source of all the trial. He's not the source of all the trials. But God doesn't want you to waste the trial. God wants you to allow Him to use the trial in your life to make you strong, to help you grow. To help you become more useful for the kingdom of God. To change your heart. To make you more like himself. God wants to use the trial so that you don't become hard, but that you become holy. Trials do make some people hard. We're going to talk about that in a second. But it was G.K. Chesterton that said, uh, I believe in getting into hot water, it keeps you clean. And anyone who holds the hand of God in the midst of a trial will come forth with a tested faith, a persevering faith, a maturing faith. You'll be cleaner, spiritually. And it's for that we re rejoice. It's not for the trial in itself, it's for the result that can come from that trial. We rejoice not for the trial, but for the outcome of the trial. And in this trial, regardless of what it is, God can make me strong. God can show Himself faithful to His promises. God can give me spiritual depth. God can help me become mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's why Barbara Johnson says, when a trial comes her way, she can always say, okay, Lord, another learning experience. That's why Martin Luther said, affliction is the best book in my library. A traditional Jewish story tells about a student who came to his rabbi and he said, Rabbi, in Isaiah the prophet, why is God's word written on people's hearts? Shouldn't it say God's word is written in people's hearts? And the rabbi said, well, the people are not yet ready. It's written on their hearts so that when they're Hearts are broken, the Word of God can fall in. And that's the way it is to the open heart who's willing to trust in God in the midst of trial. 
The word of God that's written on the heart will fall in and make you mature, complete, not like in anything. But maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, <laughs> you know, that's just preacher talk. I mean, I've known folks who have experienced trials, and it didn't make them strong. I know folks who have experienced trials, and it devastated them. It shipwrecked their faith. They became bitter. And that's true. That's why you've got to keep reading the paragraph. Trials can be used to make us strong, or trials can become the avenue that leads us to deny our faith altogether. And I've seen both. And James knew that. And so, in verses 5 through 8, James gives us the reason why some folks go under spiritually during the hard times of life. The resource in trials. This is the text that has been so misinterpreted. And yet it's so clear if you just take the time to think it through. Listen to what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's the key word. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a, a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all that he does. Our resource in the time of trial is the wisdom of God. But what do people think of when they hear that word wisdom? The wisdom of God. Normally, they think of spiritual insight, you know, spiritual smarts. So when they read uh, verse 5, they interpret the verse to mean this. If any of you lack wisdom in, in knowing why God has allowed this trial to come, he should ask God and God will give you the answer. That's normally how it's interpreted. My friend Ron Dunn, writes this. For years I approached this promise, James 1.5, like this. In the midst of a trying situation, I would ask God for wisdom, claiming the promise that He'll give it to me, and that I would wait for God to pump some wisdom into my brain. I would wait and wait, but rarely feel any wiser. I saw no fiery writing in the sky instructing me what to do. There was no sudden surge of divine insight gushing into my mind. And then I would pray again, hoping that this time my aim would be good enough to hit the bullseye. Still no wisdom. Still no flutter of wings as angels bent, low to whisper into my ear the secret wisdom of heaven. That's usually how it's interpreted. But that interpretation makes no sense. And let me tell you why. We've just been told by God in the preceding verses why God allows trials to come. We don't need to ask Him, why is this trial coming? He just told us why it's coming. The word wisdom here in James 1.5. Oh, do you remember who James is written to? We looked at it a few weeks ago to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's written to Jewish believers who have a Jewish mindset, who have a Jewish foundation. And in the Old Testament, the word wisdom does not mean spiritual insight. In the Old Testament, the word wisdom means to be skilled. That's the literal meaning of the word wisdom in the Hebrew. It's to be skilled. To be skilled at what? Well, to be skilled at living life. And so what's 
The individual here in James 1.5 is calling out for wisdom. They're saying, Lord, in the midst of this trial, I'm lacking. I'm lacking the skill to face this thing with joy. I don't have it. I'm struggling. I'm, I'm, I'm on empty here. I don't find within myself the ability to live life as you intended in the midst of this trial. So wisdom in this context is wisdom from a Jewish point of view. It's the enabling skill of God to live a righteous life. Wisdom here means to be skilled to live righteously, to live obediently, to live with joy in every circumstance of life. And so in the midst of the hard times of life, if you find that you lack the ability to rejoice in God and delight in Him, to maintain a spirit of cheerfulness, to rest and trust in the goodness of God, if you lack the strength to keep on going with joy, if you lack a godly response, if in the midst of your trial and your tears and your pain, you seem to lack the desire and the power to obey God, then what are you supposed to do? Ask God. Just ask God. And it says, He promises you skill, the skill to live life, the strength, the divine enablement to be obedient in the midst of a difficult trial. Times may come when you reach the end of your strength, when your heart is faint beneath the weight. Ask for the wisdom of God, the skill to live life in a way that honors Him. Times may come when the tears are blinding your way, when the road is long and you lose your song. Yes, for the wisdom of God, the skill to live life righteously, the skill to respond to life's trials in a godly way. And James says, you'll find that God gives generously, it says here. He gives generously to all. And here's probably something that we forget. It says he gives generously to all without finding fault. If you're struggling in your Christian life in the midst of a trial, you think God is making fun of you? No, that's not his heart. When you cry out to him and say, Lord, I'm having trouble trusting you in this. He will not find fault with you. He will not ridicule you. He will not belittle you for your lack of faith. That's not the kind of God we have. When we come to Him and say, Lord, I need the skill to live life righteously in the midst of this trial. He's going to say, what? I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad that you're coming to me. Because I'll give that to you. That's the promise of God. But he says you must ask in faith. You must ask sincerely, believing that God's going to give me the skill to live righteously in the midst of this thing. But if you're double-minded, he says, and as if you're a fragmented Christian, you know, we have one foot in, one foot out. The Chinese speak of... Uh, a man with a foot and two boats. If you're a, a person of divided allegiance, or in Pilgrim's Progress, it speaks of the chap whose name is Mr. Going Both Ways. If that's you, you're not going to receive anything from the Lord. Nothing. If you are vacillating and unsettled, if you love God, but not very much, it says here, you're not going to receive anything from the Lord. You're on your own. Until you come to the end of yourself and you cry out 
to God with an undivided heart. But if you lack wisdom, if you lack the skill to live life and you pray believing that, that God's going to give you the ability to, to get through this with joy, a delight in Him, an obedient heart, desiring His will above your own, then God, who always keeps His promise, will give you the skill to live life righteously in the midst of the pain and the frustration and the heartache and the hurt. God is like a pitcher tilted toward His children, just, be, just waiting to be poured out to give you that enabling strength in your life. By the wisdom of God, by the skill of living life, you can consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. You can trust God in the midst of the tears. By the wisdom of God, you can become mature and complete, not lacking anything. By the wisdom of God, you can use the trials of life to make you strong. The resource in trials. God can give you the enabling strength, the skill to live life. You've got to ask for it. You've got to ask for it. Now, James gives us an example of one who's facing a trial. It happens to be the trial of poverty, the representation of trials in verses 9 through 11. He says, the brother in humble circumstances. That's a tactful way of saying, you are poor, 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 poor. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich, notice it does not say, now the brother who is rich. Because when you read the whole book of James, James chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you find that the rich man in James is not only materially rich, he is also totally self-absorbed, totally dependent upon himself, his money, his plan, his program. The rich man in the book of James is an unsaved rich man. And so the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, the blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed, and in the same way the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. The poor believer may have absolutely nothing in this life to rejoice about as far as financial means and financial security. But he can take pride in his high position. What is his high position? He knows God. He's a child of God. And maybe you have nothing in this life. Maybe you've been deprived of what it seems so many others have and you find yourself kind of at the low level on the social ladder. You can rejoice because you're spiritually exalted if you know Jesus Christ. You may find yourself hungry but you have the bread of life. You might find yourself thirsty but you have the water of life. You may Find yourself poor, but Scripture says you have eternal riches that cannot be taken away. You may be cast aside by men, but you're received by God, which is more important. You may have no home here, but you have a glorious one in eternity. So James says, poor folks, you, you rejoice too, because you have received Christ and because of that, you have divine attention. 
And one day you'll receive a divine inheritance that will cause you to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so we can rejoice in any trial. We can rejoice in any deprivation. We can rejoice in any loss because we have a high position in God's kingdom. Poverty is only a short-lived trial. But one day there will be a great reversal. And those who trust in Christ will be made high, and, and the high who reject Christ will be made low. So consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know something to be true. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And you must let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. For if any of you lacks the skill to live life, the skill to rejoice in the trial, the skill to trust God, if any of you lacks wisdom, you just ask God might be the last thing that you are inclined to do, should be the first thing you should do. Just ask God. And God who gives generously to all without finding fault, without ridiculing them, without talking down to them. God will give you that wisdom. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. But the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. And the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Obviously it's a desert picture here where the desert rains fall and vegetation sprouts and flowers are on the plain and then the sun comes up and it withers it in a day. It's gone. That's the rich man. It blossoms, falls, its beauty is destroyed in the same way the rich man. I'm not talking about all rich men here. He's talking about unbelieving, oppressive, when you get to chapter 5, unjust, persecuting rich men. That's who he's talking about in the book. The rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. When Dr. Warren Wiersbe was pastor of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, Illinois, there was an elderly couple in the church that just seemed to go through one trial after another. The husband became blind and then he had to be hospitalized because of another issue and at the same time his, his wife uh, had a mild stroke. Um, fortunately she recovered well. But one Sunday morning as the people were exiting the church, this lady came up to Dr. Wiersbe and, and shook his hand and, and Dr. Wiersbe said, I've been praying for you, which is, was true. And she said, well, what have you been praying for? And Dr. Wiersbe said, well, I've been praying that God will give you strength. And she said, well, that's good. But I also want you to pray that God would not waste this trial on me. And that's well said. Many of us waste our trials. We resent them as intruders. We don't trust God in them to make us strong, mature. We gripe, we complain, we become angry at God, we become resentful towards others, and the trials impair us instead of improving us because we're unwilling to cooperate with God in the midst of the trial. So don't waste your trials. No matter how they come, 
God's desire is that that trial makes you strong. He will use it to deepen your Christian life. Because of God's promise, I know that, that I can make it by His Spirit and by the power of His mighty hand. For every hill that I've had to climb, for every stone that bruised my feet, for all the blood and sweat and grime, for the blinding storms and burning heat, my heart sings but a grateful song. These were the things that made me strong. For all the heartaches and all the tears and all the anguish and the pain, for gloomy days and fruitless years and for the hopes that lived in vain, I do give thanks for now I know that these were the things that really helped me grow. Listen to this song. I love you, Lord, for your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been helping your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. of the good. 
some days are stones and sometimes the hard times won't leave me alone. Sometimes the cold wind blows a chill through my bones. Some days are diamonds and some days are stones. And in those days I need to by faith consider it pure joy, my brothers. When I face the trials of many kinds, knowing that something is true, that in that trial God desires to make me strong. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that one day you're going to send Jesus again, and this time he will set things completely right and establish a new heaven and a new earth with no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. But until then, Father, may we trust your goodness in our lives. And may we ask you specifically for the wisdom of God, not spiritual insight, not, not asking why the trial has come, but asking for the skill to live life righteously in the midst of it all. Forgive us, Father, for our lack of faith, lack of trust, lack of obedience. We thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, continually cleanses us from all sin. But we thank you that you are a God who gives generously without finding fault, without belittling us, without ridiculing us, and you love to give the wisdom of God so that we can glorify you in this life that is full of hardships and trials. We look forward to the day Jesus comes. We pray this in his name. Amen.